This morning, back in Romans chapter 8. Now, I had, had, back in January, I had the idea that we can probably get through this chapter before Christmas. Do you know it's October? That means there's only about four or five weeks this month and about four weeks next month. That's nine weeks. And there's still at least nine verses to go before the Christmas messages start. So, if we spill over into January, I hope you don't mind. I think this has been a very profitable chapter to spend time in. Uh, I love talking about our security in God's plan. And that's what we've been doing here uh, for the next last couple of weeks anyway. We've been in this paragraph from verse number 29 through verse number 30. We haven't even made it to 30 yet. But we're especially here in verse number 29. And I take you to that again today. Verse number 29. We're going to look especially at the last phrase of verse number 29, where it says, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's our, our passage today. But I'm going to start reading in verse 28 and give us a, a big context picture as we start in on this little part of it. And, uh, of course, we have a word of prayer. In verse 28, and we know that God calls us all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. Heavenly Father, we are once again diving into an ocean of thought about what you have done for us and about your great plan that's already being enacted out and will ultimately be fulfilled exactly like you you have planned it. And it is a privilege not only to be a part of such a large, wonderful, incredible thing, but to know that you love us as individuals. And as an individual who was so in need of a Savior, you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place that through faith in Him we might have the forgiveness of their sins, but also a relationship with you and our hope for eternal life. You have done it all, and we give you the glory for that and the credit as we even begin this morning. This incredible passage before us has been good for us to spend much time in. It is working in our hearts, Lord, as you always do, and it's helping us to see what you are doing. And I pray, Lord, that we might be receptive again as we open up your word today. Melt our hearts to see, to understand, and to appreciate even more your great love for us. We thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The main statement we've been looking at in this paragraph Verse 28, 29, and 30 is verse 28. That one is very familiar to us about God working all things together. God causing all things.
all things together to to come to a good thing. If we follow the literal Greek, we talked about this before. He is operating and working together all things into a good thing. Into a good thing. And it's according to his plan. He has a plan. Now, if I were to go to the grocery store this afternoon and and go, I, I always go down, well, most of the time, I go down to the United store over there on, on a Garriott by the Kmart. And I can walk in there and I, I know the bakery items are right there. But you move beyond that, there's sale items on the shelves. And you go a little further and there's the fruits section as you go there. And then all these things they call vegetables that look unusual items there. Uh, you go past that. And you work your way around, you've got the ketchup, and you've got the salad dressings, and you've got the cheese. And you, Most of you could do this, can't you? you? You know there's one aisle for cereal, and there's one aisle that has a coffee, and there's another aisle where you'll find the bread, and the eggs are in their right place. And, and after a while, you get used to everything in its right place. You know where it should be. Now, most of the time when we... I had to close that. Sorry. The door was opening on me. Uh, most of the time when we go into a store, we take our little lists, or maybe big lists for some of us, and, and you know, I've got to be here, I've got to be there, I've got to be here. And you don't buy the whole store, even though it feels like it. You don't buy the whole store. You take items out of it, put them in your cart, you buy that, and you take that home. When we see a verse like verse number 28, and we say all things, do you realize how big that topic is? When you consider your life, and just try for a moment, imagine that your life is a grocery store. All right? You have a little aisle here that represents your childhood. An aisle here that represents your brothers and sisters. And another section for your parents. Another section for your grandparents. And and for some of us, there's another section for our spouse, another section for our children, another section for the grandchildren. And some of you even have another section for great-grandchildren. Maybe there's even more than that. And you've got a section there for your education, where you went to school as a, a young person, where you go to school as in your in high school, or where you're going into school at college. You have another section there, and you, you have these aisles labeled education. And then you go around the corner, and there's occupation. And you've got uh, items on the shelf that represent the various jobs you've had. And maybe it was in fast foods, and maybe you worked your way up to a manager. Or maybe you're, you're into some sort of business or computer or some sort of uh, medical field. or so. You, you can picture that aisle, can't you? And there's other aisles that might represent how many times you've needed medical assistance. Some of us might take two aisles for such a thing. But all the various things we've been through for medical needs, or you've got another aisle here that represents your hopes and your dreams and your plans, and another aisle here that represents the fellowship you've had with other Christians and the churches you've attended, the places you've lived, and on and on and on. You've got a picture in your mind? Now, when God says he's working all things together, he's taking the whole store, folks. He's not just taking one shelf in your life. He's not taking one part of your life. He's not just taking this piece and that piece, selectively choosing from that. But our God so amazingly takes 
everything and makes one good thing. That's verse 28. Just stopping and thinking that through, it, it expands the mind, doesn't it? To think, wow, really? Can God do such a thing? Yes. Matter of fact, think of the variety that this whole room represents, because not all of us have the same education, the same family, the same, you know, all those things. It's all different. And yet God can take all of those various things and come out with one good thing. This is a fascinating part of verse number 29. There are two things happening in verse number 29 as regards to God's great plan and how he explains that plan. One side of it is very personal because it comes to us. It speaks of us. For those whom he foreknew, that's you in Jesus Christ, those whom he foreknew, he foreknew you, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's very personal, but it is God's plan for you. He, he has predestined you. That's his action in verse number 29 concerning you. Your identity is that you're a conformed one. That's an adjective. It's more than just saying that he is conforming you, but he has identified you as a conformed one, and the goal is the image of Christ. We talked about that last time, didn't we? That's what you shall be. For when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're being conformed to the image of Christ, which is an awesome, incredible thing, isn't it? What a difference that is in all of us. And that's the outcome. It's guaranteed. God spoke it. It's clear in His plan. And none of these words in verse 29 had the word maybe in front of it, did it? Not one. Because He is doing it. And He will do it. That's my confidence. That's why I feel secure in this. That's why I'm glad he's doing it, and it's not up to me. But this is God's plan. This is God's work. And just to wear that identity as a conformed one to the image of Christ is overwhelming. It's just marvelous that he should do that. Now, I told you that side of it pertains to us. But that's not where he ended his thought. In verse number 29, he also speaks about Jesus Christ. When he mentioned that we are being conformed to the image of his son, he said, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. This is a powerful, powerful phrase. And I hope we can understand it. And I hope we can appreciate it here this morning. Because it speaks of his purpose. His purpose. Why has he chosen you? Why has he chosen me? Why does He foreknow us? Why does He predestine us? Why conform us? Why into the image of Christ? The big why is right there. You can't miss it. Why? This is a purpose that's coming forth in front of us here. God's plan always has a purpose. Understand that. He doesn't do anything just out of a whim without any direction to it. He always has a purpose. 
He always has a plan, and the plan always has an ending to it. All right? That's where he's going. And we're going to see that today. Because that word why has to be answered. There's another song we have in our hymn book. And some of these phrases here may not be all the song verses that we have, but most of these are in our hymn book. Where it says, Love sent my Savior to die in my stead. Why should he love me so? Meekly to Calvary's cross he was led. Why should he love me so? Nails pierced his hands and his feet for my sin. Why should he love me so? He suffered sore my salvation to win. Why should he love me so? The verse goes on and on and on, but it keeps asking the same question, doesn't it? The conclusion of the song. Why should he love me so? Why should he love me so? Why should my Savior to Calvary go? Why should he love me so? I can't help but ask questions like that when I read chapter 8 of the book of Romans. I can't help but think that. Why would he love me like that? Grammatically, what the rest of verse 29 does is just incredible. I could look at it and I could speak to you from a, a the Greek syntax and all those wonderful... Now, syntax, that's S-Y-N, not S-I-N. Tax. All right? We know of another kind of like... We say syntax. What is that? That's how a sentence is constructed, the various parts and how they work in there. And it gets rather, rather technical. But I'll just give you this, and this might help it. That the last phrase is a purpose clause. All right? He's going to give us a purpose. And the way he explains it is... This is the limit that he sets up. All right? Now, follow this idea. Earlier he says he's predestined us. Remember the word predestined was defined like setting the horizon, setting the borders up? This is, this is what it looks like inside of this. This is where he's at work. This is his predestined territory that he's working in our life. But it has its border. It has its limit. It has the place where it's going to, where it's going to set up and stop. That's the goal. All right? This is a very appropriate phrase that he's giving to us because we think, and we're like this because we're human, we think, well, it's all about bringing us into the image of Christ. And I like that. But it doesn't stop there. Okay? Many times we stop with ourselves because that's all we know. You know, talk about me. That's what we like. Just talk about what I'm going to get out of this. He says, yes, that's what I'm doing with you. But that's not the borderline. That's not the end of the line. That's not where the, the action finishes. The action finishes with this phrase that he is going to... I just lost it. Here it is. He, that Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's where it's going. Alright? That's the goal. Okay, let's walk it through just very carefully and look at the words for a minute. Brethren, who's that? That's us. Alright, we're still in the phrase. Okay, the firstborn among many brethren. You are being made in the image of Christ. 
scripture also says you're not only heirs of God, but you're what? Joint heirs with Christ. You are considered his brother. All right, we use the word brethren. Big term. Okay, you guys, ladies could fit in there too, can't you? With a, with a, it's a brethren. It's those who are his siblings, so to speak, his brothers. Now, we say, okay, this is about the brothers. But what about him? Firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn. The word is preeminent. Preeminent. That means he's first and he's above all in the concept. He might have the preeminence. I'm going to show you some very incredible passages. One's in Colossians chapter 1, and I encourage you to turn there with me for a minute. We're going to see a lot of verses here for the next few minutes. But I'm going to explain what I'm going to show you. You ready? This is the phrase, this is what we're studying. The Father who is doing all this work has such a view of His Son. His view of His Son is so great that it satisfies the Father to make all believers into His image. And to bring Him, His Son, glory as the firstborn among us. So His work for us is to make us like Christ, but His work with Christ is to make Him first of all the brethren. That He would have the preeminence. Colossians 1, verse 18. You've made your way over there. It speaks of Jesus Christ. Well, back up to verse 14. Verse 18 is a key. But speaking of Christ, in whom we have the redemption, verse 14 says, the forgiveness of sins. He, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. We'll come back to that, but that doesn't mean Christ was made. Alright? Verse 16, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him. And read the next three words. And for Him. Have you ever stopped to contemplate those three words? Does that include you? You have been created for Him. It goes on to say in verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I love that phrase. You know, sometimes life feels like it's falling apart. But there's one who holds it together. And He holds it together. I love that. Verse number 18, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Hold that thought. There it is again. Firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through his blood. 
But look at that verse 18 again. Why did God do this? That he would come to have first place in everything. In everything. Now, you're in Colossians, backed up about three chapters into Philippians, chapter number 2. Chapter number 2. Another familiar passage to you. Start with verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now that's our application before we even go into the uh, illustration of what we're to be like. So he starts to describe Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is really hard to fathom. He's speaking about God. Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is God, humbling himself to that very point of dying on a cross for you and me. That's humbling just to understand it. But this is what he's done for us. For this reason, Paul goes on to add, God highly exalted him. Wouldn't you? But God can do it, you see. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Aren't those powerful words? This is to God's glory that we exalt His Son and declare Him Lord. Ephesians, back up another book, chapter number 1. Ephesians 1, verse number 9 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 1, 9 and 10. It says, He has made known to us the mystery of His will, according to the kind intentions which He purposed in Him. Him. Who is that? Jesus Christ. This is what God purposed in Jesus Christ. What is it? Verse 10 says, With a view to an administration or a time suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. This is an incredible passage. This is God's purpose. He's going to take all things, and I don't know how, but He's going to find their sum in Jesus Christ. He's going to be preeminent in everything. What's going to be above Him? Anything on he- in heaven? Anything on earth? No. 
His name's above every name. God's plan is that all things are summed up in Him. And over and over and over, I could take you to passages after passages after passages, that the Father loves His Son. And because He loves Him, He honors Him. He exalts Him. He places Him above everything and everyone and makes Him the pinnacle of His purpose. That's incredible. All things are being brought together in Him. All things will be made sense in Him. All things will bring glory to Him. That's what He has done with Jesus Christ. That's what He's done. Now the Father, is it, just amazingly, as we've read these things and seen these things, when the Father works, He works through His Son. When it comes to creation, He works through His Son. When it comes to salvation, He works through His Son. When it comes to access to the Father, guess how that happens? Through His Son. The Father works in us through His Son. In us and through us in His Son. He relates everything to His Son. Do you get an idea that He loves Him dearly? He puts His Son on everything. Labels it. This belongs to Him, and this belongs to Him, and this belongs to Him. It's His! And it's all for Him. That's the Father's view of His Son. That's an incredible thing we're seeing here. He says, even to the point, you can't be saved without Christ. There is salvation in no other name, folks. None. People out there calling out on all kinds of names to save them. But God says, it's only in the name of my Son that I save anyone. That's what it is. He says, you can come to me, and you come only by approaching through my Son. No one comes to the Father but through Him. That's God's plan. That's God's plan. Now, I'm walking you through this because when we see the word, firstborn pop up on the page. This is what he has done. He made him first. See? First in all things. You know, when Jesus was born naturally, we read in Scripture, that he was the firstborn of Mary, right? She brought forth her firstborn son and laid him in a manger. We read that in the Old Testament as well, when it talks about uh, God's choosing of the firstborn in each family. We're talking about that on Sunday night. God chooses the firstborn of the tribes of Israel, and then He chooses a, na- a tribe separately. But He chooses the firstborn. That's, that's t- speaking of a natural uh, progression. In families that have children, there is a firstborn. All right? You may not be the firstborn. You might be second. You might be third. You might be seventh. You know, some families are big around here. But there is a firstborn when it comes to children. And there's a natural way to say, okay, I could understand that. But when it's used in Scripture, it has a concept behind it. And the concept we're looking at here is proto and takas. These two words stuck, stuck to stuck together. Protos and takos. 
Protoss is first, but it also means chief. It speaks of that which is sometimes the best, or the most important, or the first thing, or the foremost, or the leading. It talks about that which is preeminent in that nature. It's first. And Tatas is the word for one that's begotten. We use it for giving birth and, and such like that, that which is born. And God puts these two terms together to try to express in some sort of human way that we could grasp this, <laughs> that Christ is to be first. Yes, he's making us all like him. Why? Because Christ is first. And if God wanted you to be the best, he said, then you'd have to be like his son. You see? So that's why he's doing that. That we all may be like him. But when we stand in glory someday, and we all resemble Christ as God has designed it to be so, not one of us is going to say, I'm first in this group. Because there's only one who is first. We are all copies. He is the original. He is the one we're copied from. That's why he puts him as the firstborn. Firstborn. It's mentioned often in Scripture. We saw that in Colossians 1.15. I told you I'd mention this. It says where he is the firstborn of all creation. And then it goes on to say that he, he created it all. But here's the amazing thing. Not only did he create it all, and he created mankind, but then he put on flesh, and he dwelt among us. What an incredible God we have. That He should come down to our level. That He should put on creation as well as be creator at the same time. Really, theologically, it goes way beyond our circuits to handle it. But when you start to think it through, there is no other person in the flesh greater than Jesus Christ. That's who He is. The firstborn of all creation. We've had great people on this planet. Starting all the way back from the beginning to where we are now. And sometimes they say, well, that person was significant in history. That person did something so special in history. We still talk about it today. Interesting individuals. Eccentric individuals. All kinds of individuals. Some that stand out that we read in our history book and say, that person was important. But Jesus Christ is first of all, of all, who's ever walked on this planet. He's first of all creation. The Creator took on flesh and dwelt among us. It said in Colossians, that was Colossians 1, 8, uh, 15, 1, 18, he said, it says he's the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Now, were there people in the Old Testament brought back from the dead? Yes, there were, matter of fact. Little boy dies, in walks Elisha, brings her back to life. We've got all kinds of interesting stories like that. And we say, well, that's curious. All right, you go into the New Testament. Did Jesus Christ bring anybody back from the dead? Many times, matter of fact. Uh, I heard one commentator say it this way, and it's just being comical a little bit, but Jesus messed up every funeral he went to. 
He'd bring them back from the dead. Lazarus, the, the widow's son. We have example after example of people. But, but they, they died and they were brought back before Jesus died and rose again. So why would his be first? Was it first in order? No, not necessarily in time, not necessarily in chronology, but in what it was, it was first. Because no one has ever brought themselves back from the dead. But Jesus Christ did. Matter of fact, it's more than just that. Because he rose never to die again. Poor Lazarus had to go through it twice. I've always wondered if the insurance salesman said, No, Lazarus, you don't get the second policy. But what what do you do? These people lived, they died, Jesus brought them back, they died again. Jesus never dies again. He's the first of that order. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's unique in that. No one else knows that but him. But someday you will. When we go to be with the Lord, when these bodies eventually die, He is the resurrection and the life. And He will bring us back, and we shall be with Him forever, never to die again. We're going to be after His copy, you see? But He's firstborn in that department too. He's preeminent in that department too. There's no one else like Him. Nor will there ever be. Now I find this interesting as I've gone through these firstborn passages. I stumbled on a handful of them in the book of Hebrews. I want to show these to you just for a minute. Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 6. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. Again, a really fascinating passage about the father's love for his son. And in verse number 5, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Did God ever say that to an angel? No. He didn't say, Hey, Michael, we're going to have a special thing. You're going to be my son, and I'm going to be your father. He never said that to Michael or Gabriel or those angels. He didn't say that. That's what the question is in verse 5. But verse number 6 says this, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, that's Jesus Christ, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. Now, the angels had a rule. God had instructed these angels. And they knew it well because they rehearsed it and they even spoke it to people who who would fall down in front of an angel and worship them, they say, oh no, 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 you don't worship angels. God's rule. You don't worship us, you worship him. Angels knew that. They knew they were designed to worship God only. And what did this verse tell us then? When Jesus Christ is brought into the world as the firstborn, he says to the angels, worship him. Who is he? He's God. The angels worship him. Who else do they worship? No one else. He's first in who they worship because he's God. 
I find that interesting. That's related there. Uh, we could jump down to verse number or chapter 12 of Hebrews. Verse number 23. Look at this verse. Now, I always back up one verse. You're getting used to that, I think. Verse number 22. For you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of blood better than Abel's. Now, back up to verse 22. 20, no, 23. To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. The church of the firstborn. By a, being a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a member of his church. He said, I will build my church, right? You're a member of that church. You belong to it. But who does the church belong to? It's the church of the firstborn. It belongs to him. And they wear his identity. But the church is unique. The church is not a business, folks. Though our world looks at it like it is. They look at it as, a, as a, a place with an address, a place with a telephone number, a place where you have to fill out IRS documents once a year or so. They look at the church as a business. They look at the pastors as self-employed sometimes. They have all kinds of interesting terms for us. But they're trying to put us into their little box of what this world views as a functioning organization. The church is an organism, not an organization. It is a body of Christ. It is not just a, a building. It's not just a phone number. It's not just lights and pulpits and pews and hymn books. It's people bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. They belong to Him. They wear His name. The church is His. It's the church of the firstborn. It belongs to Him. We belong to Him. Because He has saved us. Hebrews tells us that. We've got passages after passages. Uh, you could add Revelation 1.5. I'm not going there right now. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 also talks about him being the firstborn of the dead once again. But why did I walk you down this road? Because when I go back to our Romans passage here, Romans chapter 8, and in verse number 29. This is God's plan. You are to be like Christ. Because Christ is to be first. Christ is to be first. When we all stand in glory together, and we all resemble Christ, and the Father is pleased, His Son will have preeminence. His Son will stand out. He will be unique. Now, I bring all that to you today. I've got to stop. I heard... Somebody's beat went off 12 o'clock. All right. This is what I saw just the other day, or just wrap it up this way. I'm sitting in an airplane, and I'm looking up at the first class section. All right? And, you know, it used to be they had these huge curtains and everything that they'd spread across. There. You, you 
can't watch those people. They're important people, I guess. They have wider seats and they get better food or something. I don't know. But that's first class, and I'm always back there. The airplane I was on had a curtain. It was this wide and this tall. That was it. And I almost laughed out loud when I saw that thing. That was the only barrier between us and first class, was that bitty little curtain. And I thought, what a comical little thing. How is that going to keep me from getting up there? I could see the guy. It didn't even cover him up. But there he sat in that back row, and there he was in that seat. And that little bitty, little sample of a curtain hanging there. When we get up into glory, I don't think we're going to have trouble distinguishing who is first when we see that place. Because we will see our Savior. I love the way Betty Crosby wrote it. I will see my Savior first of all. First of all. Is he first, folks? How about is he first in your life right now? Is he first in your love? Is he first in your thoughts? Is he first in your plans? Is he first in your life? God made him first. And he will always have first. And if we belong to him, we should live that way, right? We should live that way. We've got some more to go. I've got to stop. I'm I'm over. Let's talk to the Lord about this. Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, it's an amazing thing to study in, far beyond our feeble minds to comprehend. Really it is. But it is incredible to think along these lines and try to grasp it, Lord. And and I know theology is a difficult road to take because there are so many things that are, are confusing, so many terms used some that are accurate and some that are not accurate. And it's hard, Lord, to grasp something this big. But I pray that you would take these words that you have written and attach them to our understanding. Help us to grasp it. Help us to live in light of the fact that our Savior is first of all to the praise of our Savior and our Lord. Lord, you know what to do in our hearts with this information. We ask that you do it, that we might live differently this week. Live differently because we know who is first in our heart and in our life. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for who you are. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.